0: I, um, because of what I do, I have a conversation that recurs more frequently than you might imagine. When people will say to me, "I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual," and it, it, that's a great opener. And I, until just recently, I have not been able to give a, you know, a, a good segue in response. And and I have figured one out now, but. When people say, "I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual," I used to say, "I'm not religious either," and they would say, "Well, how can you not be religious? That's your job, right?" So I say, "Yeah, I know, but it's it's not the religion; it's it's believing and so on." But last weekend, I had that conversation with, with somebody, and the way it, it turned was quite interesting to me. Um, this person said to me, "I'm I'm not religious, I'm but I'm spiritual." And I said, "Well, I would like to claim that for myself, that I'm spiritual, but actually, I should probably say I'm I'm more soulish." And he said, "What do you mean?" And we had an interesting conversation. I want to talk this morning about being soulish, and being spiritual, but being spiritual understanding that there is there is something in the scriptures that that is very enlightening, that basically tells us how we're made, tells us what parts are us, and they are, in the scriptures, the body, the soul, and the spirit. And so we're looking at the Magnificat, and by the magic of technology, it's going to appear right on the screen. We're flipped. Ah, there we go. The Magnificat is the uh, passage that we're having a look at during this Advent. And Magnificat simply comes from the Latin word, I magnify. So it sort of expands that out a little bit. And it's Mary singing and singing or saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And we talked last week in very general terms about um, some of the differences between the the Protestant sort of stream of Christianity, the Catholic stream of Christianity, a little bit about the Orthodox stream of Christianity, and we, we all kind of come together on the person of Mary. And as I said last week, we would think that some parts of the Christian faith think too highly of Mary, and there are other parts that think not highly enough about Mary. And so we're wanting to know if we, as we probably are, are those who don't think highly enough, what did Mary mean when she said that generations to come would call her blessed? And that's uh, what her cousin Elizabeth said about her. God sent an angel and the angel said, you're a highly favored woman and God's grace has come to visit you. So what did Mary mean and how can her magnificat... um, Teach us uh, to worship God. So the little part that we're looking at today is this one. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So are the soul and the spirit the same thing or are they different things? And that's not a very simple question to answer because if we go back into the Old Testament, And the Old Testament is in the Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew language. The Old Testament does not have the language to differentiate between soul and spirit. The New Testament, which was written in Greek, but probably reporting conversations that were spoken in Aramaic, which gets terribly confusing for us because Aramaic is more a Hebrew sort of a language and Greek is not Hebrew at all. So Hebrew is a very concrete language. It's a language about stories. It's a language about real things. Greek is a very philosophical language. So if you think back to um, philosophy class or English class, you may remember some of the great Greek philosophers and they would parse words like they would you know explain words and how those words were windows into great systems of belief and all of that um, and we are now looking at at something that Mary said. She probably said it in Aramaic. Luke, however, he heard it, wrote it in Greek. so here we come to the English Bible and say, "Are they the same thing?" So if you were a Hebrew person, you would probably say. This sounds a lot like Hebrew poetry, because Hebrew poetry rhymes, not sounds, like our... um, I know good poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, but all the poems I know rhyme sounds. Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, it rhymes ideas. And so the Old Testament you will find full of Hebrew poetry, like in the book of Proverbs, and a lot of couplets. And there will be one line and then the second line is either the first line said in a different way or it's maybe the opposite of the first line, but there's some relationship between the two lines. So if you were a Hebrew sort of a person and you read or heard Mary's Magnificat son, you would say, I wonder if it's really the same idea. Is it the same thing to say, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced? Are they just two ways of saying that in her inner person, she is worshiping God. So that, that's why I say it's not a very easy question to answer. And we might find it simpler if we just say, well, it, it, the human person is a body and a soul. It's, it's outside and inside. That's all I know. Uh, and, and I've gotten by so far about that, you know, doing quite well. If we look at other passages in the New Testament, and we're not going to um, get into the meaning of this passage... But the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So that's a pretty definite answer to the question, are there two parts or three parts to the human person? Apparently Paul thought there were three parts and The way that this is actually written in the Greek with the conjunction and between would indicate that he means three separate things. He's not just saying, um, you know, may God sanctify you entirely in spirit and soul and body. He's saying in three areas of your life, um, I want God to sanctify you entirely. One other passage that we come across in in the New Testament is written by someone whom we don't know. A lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews, but we're not sure. Uh, In Hebrews 4, verse 12, we read this, and again, we won't get into the meaning of this, although it's a beautiful passage of scripture. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart." So this writer is saying that the the Word of God is a very powerful agent and it it can discern between the soul and the spirit. So whoever wrote Hebrews, presumably then, is also subscribing to this idea of there being three parts to the human person and they would need to be addressed separately rather than just the outer person and the inner person. Well, what are we going to do with that? What is the body? We might say that the body is the person's world consciousness, so um, it's not hard to explain or define the body. The body is the shell that we live in. It's the house that we live in. Um, as a pastor, one of the most interesting things that I do, this sounds fairly morbid, but is I do burials. and. When we commit a body to the earth whence it came, we do so in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. And all of a sudden, this whole notion of the body being separate from the person uh, comes into play. And it's, it's often very comforting for families to understand that the body that we're putting into the grave Um, is not the real person, especially for for children, is to say, uh, that's not your aunt, that's the house that she used to live in. And uh, I did one for the uh, stepmother of my daughter-in-law, and so my granddaughter, um, as we were walking to the cemetery, to the grave, she pointed to, it was an urn in this case, and she said, do you know who's in there? And I said, I do. Do you know who's in there? And she said, and she named her uh, grandma, and she said, but she's not really there. She's in the clouds playing with our dog, the dog that died, that also went somewhere else. But this little granddaughter was making the distinction that, yeah, yeah I know, she's not really there. And that's a comfort to us, um, to be able to say that that's just the house that we lived in. It's also a comfort to me when I look in the mirror and understand that this is not me, right? Um, what are we going to look like when we go to heaven or when the kingdom is uh, renewed here on earth? Well, that, That's fun to talk about. But, but the body is the way in which we interact with the world around us. The body has the senses of taste and touch and all of those things. The body has... Um, the mechanical ability to move, um, uh, to utter speech, all of those things um, are kind of the domain of the body. But when we go then to the soul and to the spirit, what are those entities in the human person? Well, we could say the soul is the self-consciousness. The soul is the way that I understand myself, the way that I value myself, um, it's it's kind of the, the software of, of my human existence. Um, and then beyond that, the spirit, we might say, is the God consciousness part of us. So we have a body, that's the way that we interact with the world. We have a soul, that's the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we relate to ourselves. Uh, and the spirit, is the way that we are aware of and relate to God. When I say to someone, I'd like to say I'm spiritual, but I would actually have to say I'm usually more soulish than spiritual. What I mean by that is that there's kind of a battle that goes on inside me between my soul and my spirit. And my soul is where the sinful part of me resides. The soul is where good things reside, but it's also where bad things reside. Um, these days, more and more, as, as the terrible things in our world happen, and as people commit atrocious acts of cruelty to one another, and uh, I, I just find myself really saying to people, but doesn't it make you ask why? What's wrong with us? I mean, it, we can't fix us. As much as we try, we try to get better, we do some things better, but what's wrong with us? Because we're still broken. We're broken. And I think that's an aspect of the souls of the human person. Um, that, that we are mixed up in our soul. Um, our spirit is the part that god speaks to and if if we and we shouldn't be entirely greek but if we were greekish in our thinking we would say that's where god himself lives not in the soul not in the body but god lives in the human person in that person's spirit the phenomenon of being spiritually dead i think is something that we need to really get our, our minds around and understand. Because if, if if I press hard with someone who is saying to me, I'm not religious but I'm spiritual, what I usually find is that there's some kind of spiritual interest or there's some kind of um, acknowledgement that there must be a higher power, that there must be a God, there must, you know, there, there should be justice in the world, there should be reward after this life and, and all of those things. I think that's what people are getting at when they call themselves spiritual. But I would like to ask them, are you not actually struggling more in a soulish way? The way that you're aware of yourself, uh, the struggles and the, and the successes you have, are they really spiritual things or are they actually soulish things? In the new year, we're going to do a teaching series um, based on Bible characters. And the Bible characters, each one that we look at, um, is a great example of, you, you may have heard the term Enneagram floating around. It's you know one of the sort of current areas of interest. The Enneagram is um, the way that we understand people's souls, in a sense. Um, we're, we're going to call it probably out of the box, because when you begin to think about okay, which, which type are you? We begin to resent that and resist it and say you're, you're trying to put me in a box. And many have said actually the Enneagram helps you get out of your box. And so I'm looking forward to getting out of my box and understanding myself a little bit, bit better. And I think it's understanding my soul a little bit better that we'll be able to discern and, and we'll be able to move ahead spiritually because we kind of do the work in the soul that we need to do. Well, when we think about this, um, we maybe put concentric circles on a piece of paper and say the body is um, kind of the outer shell, the body contains the soul, and the spirit is contained inside the body and soul somehow. Um, many have said that that the soul is kind of the the touch point between a person's body, his physical, her physical existence, and his or her spiritual life or lack of life. So to make sure we understand it, the soul, we could possibly say, is our personality. It's, it's our self-consciousness, and it might be summarized by saying it's a person's personality. So my soul is where my will is, it's where my intellect is, and it's where my emotions are. And the, the daily drama of human existence often is in those areas, isn't it? Um, what do I want? What am I trying to do? What do I wish for? Um, the intellect is where many of us live, which is in our heads, and we try to figure things out. And sometimes you like a good puzzle. You love a good jigsaw puzzle, right? Um, because we can sort of figure it out. And the emotions are where we try to understand ourselves. Why am I mad? Why am I upset? Why am I sad? What does it mean to languish through this pandemic? What are these emotions in me? Uh, We can often read the emotions in someone else more easily than we can read our own emotions. I don't know what I'm feeling. Um, and oftentimes when you're trying to guide a child and, and you're saying, why are you upset? And they, they sort of look at, at you helplessly and say, I don't know why I'm upset. That's why I'm upset. Okay, Let, let's try another tack then, right? So the body is there, the spirit is deep in, and the soul is what's between the two. I want to suggest today that there are three areas in which we need to have a spiritual quickening. So that comes back to this whole notion about the spirit being dead um, and needing to be resurrected or enlivened or the old English word quickened, right? Means to sort of bring life to something. And in the conversations I have with folks about being spiritual or being soulish, without labeling things this way, what I'm wanting to do is say, well, I think we need to talk about your soul. Um, Your relationships, they're a function of your soul. Your moods, they're a function of your soul. Your addictions are a function of your soul. Um, But beneath that and deeper than that is the need for spiritual quickening. And the relationship between the spirit and the soul would tend to be a relationship of struggle. One of the two wants to be in charge. Either the spirit wants to be in charge or the soul wants to be in charge. In fact, they do both want to be in charge. The soul is more of a scrapper. The soul will work harder to get control than the spirit. The spirit is the part of us that relates to the Holy Spirit, and when we consider his attributes, his characteristics, we realize that he can be grieved and he can be quenched. So the spirit is, is rather sensitive and, and a little bit fragile, and yet it is critically important that the spirit be in charge. Um, theologians would say that before the fall of man, We didn't have a fallen soul. We didn't have a soul. Um, There was anything other than a set of functions in obedience to the spirit because the spirit was the the God-breathed life consciousness into humankind before sin came along and basically uh, invaded the soul. So I, I would say that a spiritual quickening is of dire importance in my life, in your life, in all of our friends' lives. Um, The most fundamental thing that everyone needs is God's life in them. And the true condition of the fallen human is that that person is spiritually dead, or we might say spiritually insensitive, um, spiritually unaware. Uh, And the quickening that we would long for the spirit to bring to us will sort out the human person, will sort out the priority of the spirit over the soul, will give order to the aspects of the soul, and then will allow us to express the things that um, are now our drive uh, into physical activity, into physical actions. Here are the three ways that I think we need a spiritual quickening and I'm going to use clumsy words because I'm good at using clumsy words but they all rhyme, or they don't rhyme, but they're alliterated, not illiterate. They're, they all start with the same letter, right? Alliteration, that's what it's called. We need a spiritual epistemology. me go, oh my goodness. So what does that mean? The question what is truth is very important. And in common parlance, now in the last decade, we have heard your truth or his truth or her truth. We have people resisting one another when they seem to be wanting to assert their truth unto you. I'm very happy for you to own your truth. That's your truth. It's not my truth. But behind all of that is kind of this nagging question, but is there not absolute truth? Like is there not objective truth? Can things that are completely contradictory both be true? Or is there room to discuss? I, I resent you know, being told that you shouldn't talk about religion. People of faithful religion love to talk about it. And when I'm talking with someone of a different faith, um, I'm not, first of all, just setting out to convince them of my faith. I'm wanting to understand their faith um, because talking is appropriate. And, you know, if, if you're sitting at a coffee table or with beer at the bar and a person owns up that they belong to this faith, go ahead and say, well, tell me about that. Um, what do you believe? And what, is it, what does that make you do because you believe that? Let's not say, oh, we shouldn't talk because we disagree. If it, it, it could just be that I'm Irish. I don't know. But I think disagreeing is a lot of fun. As long as you disagree agreeably is not what we should do. Um, I really love Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you follow him very much. He's a professor at U of T uh, and he's a really smart guy and he he loves to take on opponents and he takes them on in a very kind, loving sort of a way. Um, I, I heard him on a, a talk lately where he was talking with atheists and theists and people that call themselves Christians, people who didn't call themselves Christians. And he's very good at just sort of, you know, sort of poking a little bit. And the question about the existence of God, he said, I'm terrified that it might be true. And and here he is, it's sort of like, you go, oh my goodness, that's what a thing to say. But then he, he went after people that were calling themselves Christians. He said, if, if, you, if there is a God and you are his follower, and you say you're a Christian, I'd be scared to death if I were you. Because do you live like a Christian should? So he, 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 he says, I think there probably is a God. And as I sort of mull over the things he has said and written, I think the point is that he is, he's working from his soul. He's working from his intellect, and the way to know things is spiritual, not soulish that may be hard to grasp. Um, we read in romans eight sixteen that god's spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of god and first John is full of this kind of of Thinking, and it, it's it's prevalent in in Paul's writings as well. But Paul says, "Here's how you know that you are God's children. His Spirit tells your Spirit. It isn't that you've been convinced of the truth of God's existence or the truth of Christ's life. It's that something spiritual has enlightened you, and." There will be no fruit um, to intellectual pursuit that don't start with the fear of God. So that, that's the wisdom in Proverbs, um, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise that knowledge. So Solomon and and the cohort that wrote Proverbs are saying that the way you get to productive thinking. It's not by being smart, it's a spiritual thing and that's why I, as I listen to various debates and the most fun ones to listen to are debates between atheists and theists, because I don't know what God the atheists are mad at, but they're mad, right? Well, they're, they're mad at our caricature of God or something, but it's like, why are you so mad at somebody that doesn't exist? So anyway, that, that's just playing a silly game. The way that we know something is spiritual. And when we are spiritually dead, we will not be productive. We, we won't be able to figure things out. We won't be able to figure life out. When we are spiritually obtuse, or thick, or slow, or sinful, um, we'll be frustrated in our, in our spiritual lives, um, because the the spirit needs to be attended to, our relationship to God, uh, our our conversation with God needs needs to be strong. It needs to be a morning, you know, daytime and evening sort of contemplative attitude where we're assessing everything that we're seeing, doing, saying um, against the presence of God with us and in us and and for us. So I I think we need a spiritual epistemology. Epistemology is your your theory of truth, how, how you know what's true. And that's a spiritual phenomenon. And I will not be able to figure things out as smart as I could possibly be. I will not be able to figure things out intellectually and for me, that's both an enormous frustration and a great relief, because I'm frustrated not to be able to th- figure things out and, and I sit on my porch and i I go through the things that I believe, and I stop believing them, and then I come back to believing them by the time I'm finished my sitting on the porch i mean i I just go through that all the time, and I 'm sure you do the same sort of thing, right you say. Even the whole Christian faith, is it true? Because I have have this question, I have this problem, and I keep on asking God to just make it really clear to me. And he never does. Um, If he would just show up. If somebody who died just came back to life and told me whether this is worth it all or whether there's nothing out there. Um, my dad went home to be with the Lord this this fall, and I find myself asking, "Does he exist in any way right now?" And and I, I find myself praying and, and talking to God and asking God, "How how can I be sure I'm going to see my dad again? How how can I be sure that he's not just dead and gone?" Um, and then something happens that I think is, is affirming this need for being quickened spiritually. Because inside my heart and inside my head, I know it's true. And we're, we're scorned to say that sort of thing, because we, we, are, we all love to think of ourselves as being scientific. And someone will say, well, you have no scientific proof of your faith, none whatsoever. And you want to argue back and say, yes, we do, yes, we do. There's this proof and that proof, and actually we don't. But something in us, and you know, whether you call it a burning in your bosom, I don't think you should call it that because some others call it that, but there's something inside that tells me that it's true. I know that God is, and the little glimpses that I get are that God is love, and that's kind of enough sometimes, is to be spiritually quickened to know that God is love and that He loves me and that He's my Father, that He's my Abba. I don't understand what He's doing. I'm not supposed to. I can't predict what He will do. We're not allowed to. because, as Anselm, we saw a few weeks ago, God is that greater than which nothing could be conceived. So God is bigger, bigger, bigger than we've ever imagined. Greater than we've ever imagined. So we should not expect to understand that. And in in his humoring our weakness, he says, this is enough for you, that I love you and that I'm your father. That's enough. And you know that, don't you? You know that in your spirit, not, not in your soul. You know it in your spirit. The second, and the words don't get any easier, is that we need a spiritual existentialism. How do you love that? So, it, this is one of the things I look back at my notes and I say, did I say that? Are you kidding? Existentialism is the philosophy of existing. It's is just the experience of life. And the existentialism that that we need to have, says Paul, in Romans chapter 8, is to walk in the spirit. So he has looked at himself, and he has seen his soul, and it's a mess. And he, he finally says, what a wretched character I am. Who's going to d- deliver me from this body of death? Because his body was being overwhelmed by his soulish desires that were not good. And he said, the more I do battle in my soul, the more defeated I get. Because in my head, I agree with the law, but then I do the opposite. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, I do do. And I'm just a wreck. Who's gonna set me free? And then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh. And the flesh would be the soulish person. They don't walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the spirit. Do we do nearly enough work at attending to our spiritual lives? Do we understand that Without a healthy spirit, we really are miserable. We really are not, you know, on the, on the up and to the right in, in terms of growth and, and becoming. The third and last one, so my last E, is we need a spiritual eschatology. Um, eschatology is a theology that has to do with eschaton, which has to do with end times, last things. So just, you'll, you'll want to remember these words, I'm sure. So um, your epistemology is what you know is true, or what you believe is true. Um, your existential philosophy is how you make sense of living life on earth with others. And your eschatology is what you think is going to happen next or finally or, or at the end of everything. If what we say we believe is true, and we do. This body, your body, is good for 70 years and some people bought the extended warranty, right? But after that, it's that's we're done. But what do we do during those 70 years? We pay attention to this body and say, as though nothing else is in play, we do everything we can to keep it, happy fed uh, enjoying and whenever necessary we we do whatever it takes to stop it from dying right? but when we do leave this body there's eternity the body will not go past the grave but you will forever and forever and forever and w- when we I come again to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, he says, this body, it's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. What does that mean? Um, There is an existence that is primarily spiritual. Um, The soul that will be in that spiritual body will be an obedient soul. The, the will, the intellect, the emotions, will attend to the spirit. The spirit will tell them what to do. They will not tell the spirit what to do. And the body that we will have will be a spiritual body. I, don't, I have no idea. Obviously, it doesn't look like anything. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Are they individualized? Are we, you know, common sense? Whatever common sense we have says that we, we will go on existing and we will be individuals and we'll be recognizable. So we have some Bible evidence for this. I mean, some Old Testament saints showed up. And unless they had name tags on, for some reason, Peter, James, and John knew who they were, Moses and Elijah. How'd they know that? Had they seen pictures? They didn't have Bible story books back then. They didn't have videos or photographs, but they knew who it was. There was a spiritual knowing. Um, And the disciples said, hey, you know, what we ought to do here is build three monuments, like three shrines. And it was like Jesus said, oh my goodness, do I have to put up with this? Why in the world would you want to make a shrine um to commemorate a story that's not even finished yet it it's got new chapters chapter after chapter after chapter and we're not going to just you know lock it down on this mountain there's a spiritual existence that will transcend the body and it will be forever and forever and forever i think if we were to insist that the bo- the human person is just body and soul we would not be able to understand the New Testament. I just see more and more that the the understanding that we need from the Apostle Paul's writings and the Apostle John's writings, they are contingent upon this understanding that the Spirit needs to be quickened. And the life in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit, is the kind of life that we were designed for. I've been reading the book, um, The Spiritual Man, by Watchman Nee. And Watchman Nee was a fascinating character. He was a Chinese um, evangelical. from. He was schooled in the Plymouth Brethren tradition. So, you know, if Dean were here, he'd be saying amen. So is every godly person, right? Not, not really. Um, nee is responsible for great church growth in China. He was born early in the 20th century, died, I think, in the 1970s. And he wrote prolifically. And There's some people who, who look askance at his writing, and um, if you were to go watch Mani, False Teacher, Google that, there'll be all kinds of stuff comes up. So you, you read his, his material carefully, but I think he's very insightful. And I wanna read sort of a longer paragraph that, that just kind of emphasizes what we're talking about today. He says, the spirit is the noblest part of man and occupies the innermost area of his being. The body is the lowest and takes the outermost place. Between these two dwells the soul, serving as their medium. The body is the outer shelter of the soul, while the soul is the outer sheath of the spirit. The spirit transmits its thought to the soul, and the soul exercises the body to obey the spirit's order you understand that sentence, you're very good. This is the meaning of the soul as the medium. Before the fall of man, the spirit controlled the whole being through the soul. The power of the soul is most substantial, since the spirit and the body are merged there and make it the site of man's personality and influence. Before man committed sin, the power of the soul was completely under the dominion of the spirit. Its strength was therefore the spirit's strength. The spirit cannot itself act upon the body. It can only do so through the medium of the soul. This we can see in Luke 1, and this is why I sort of round off what I'm saying this morning with this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Here the change in tense, my soul magnifies, my spirit has rejoiced, shows that the spirit first conceived joy in God and then communicating with the soul, caused it to give expression to the feeling by means of the bodily organ. My soul magnifies because my spirit has rejoiced, therefore I sing a song. The fact that Mary uses these words is important, not only to distinguish between soul and spirit, but what she says happens in them. So her spirit has rejoiced in God, her savior. And that's the knowledge that she had. That's her epistemology. She knows that God is her savior. Now don't, you can't yet put a lot of New Testament language on that. It just means that God the savior was for Israel and he would rescue them again. And Mary didn't know how it was that the child she was bearing would be part of that. But the joy in her spirit caused her soul to be obedient to the spirit and magnify. It's, it's, it's the word megal, so it gives us all kinds of English words, but it's like megaphone. It's like magnify, make bigger. So her, all of the things that we said are in the soul are serving the spirit Um, and magnifying God, saying, look at what God has done. Look at who God is. And the body then responds and sings, because you can't help but singing when you grasp that. How's your joy? I think a lot of people these days are saying, boy, my joy is gone. I'm tired. I'm struggling. And... To say I'm joyful, no, I I don't think I'm joyful. Well, where do we get our joy? Our joy comes in our epistemology. It, It comes in the settled understanding of God's existence, God's love, and a relationship with God. So talk to him. Talk to him every morning and say, I know, Father, that you will be loyal to your covenant this day. Talk to him every night and say, Father, you were faithful to your covenant all day long. Here's how I saw it. Did I understand it? Could I sort my way through it? Not always. But deep in my soul, there's this settled joy that knows. And you can't convince somebody about that. You just have to report on it and invite them to allow their spirit to be quickened, um, to in fact be given life because that life is in the Son by the Spirit because of the Father's love. So check your joy quotient and start there and say, boy, I think I need to ratchet that up. And there's a spirit, there's a soul, and there's a body. I would just suggest you start thinking that way and ask what's happening here. It's easy to say what's happening to your body Sometimes it's not too hard to figure out what's going on in your soul, but it's tricky sometimes to figure out where the spirit is. In what way am I being enlivened? And what does it mean to walk in the spirit? What does it mean to know the the joy of the, the Lord, the spirit? The fruit of the spirit um, are the soul... Um, appointments from the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of those things are not natural in the soul. They issue from the Spirit. And if the Spirit's not the boss, they won't show up. So the Spirit wants to be the boss. God says, yeah, that's what I like best. That's what I'm looking at. I don't really mind whether you have hair or not. But I really do mind that your Spirit is being quenched. You need to get your spirit perking up and being quickened. We're going to sing a song to close that hopefully will just bring us home thinking about this today. Joy, joy for Christ is born. God loved us so much that he did this. God bless.